with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14, the Gospel of John chapter 14. Again, we'll read selected passages from this discourse of our Lord to the apostles as he prepared them for his departure and for the things that were going to occur after that in equipping them for the laying of the foundation blocks of his church. We are studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And this becomes and it provides the background and the foundational material for our study. John 14, beginning with verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholds him not, neither knows him. You know him, for he abides with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you desolate. I come unto you yet a little while, and the world beholds me no more, but you behold me, because I live, you shall live also. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then skip down to verse 26. But the Comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said unto you. Then turn over to chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. And then finally in chapter 16, verse 8 and following, And he, when he is come, will convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you behold me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world has been judged. Verse 13. Howbeit when he, 
the Spirit of truth is come, he shall guide you into all the truth. For he shall not speak from himself, but what things soever he shall hear, these shall he speak. And he shall declare unto you the things that are to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall declare it unto you. All things whatsoever the Father has are mine. Therefore said I that he takes of mine and shall declare it unto you. Now again, please turn with me in prayer to the Lord. Our Father, we cry to you for help now in delivering the truth to your people and to those who are strangers to grace. And ask, O Lord, that you would not let us be left relying on our own strength or wisdom, but that you now, O Lord, would supply to us richly your Spirit that we may speak the truth to which he has borne witness. O Lord, give grace to sinners and to weak men and women and children, that we may hear your voice, that we may be convinced of truth, that we may be comforted, that we may be granted grace to obey the gospel and to love our Lord Jesus. O Lord, now deal with our minds and subdue us to Christ by the work of the one about whom we seek to preach. Help us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have studied the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? He is God. He is a person. Now we are considering the work of the Holy Spirit. What does he do? In order to understand him and to comprehend his work and be able to deal with it and avoid the pitfalls of the manifold errors of our day, we need to learn what we should expect the Holy Spirit to be doing. And so that's why we're studying the work of the Spirit. Last time we considered the overarching purpose of his work, and that is this, to apply Christ to God's elect. As Calvin said, the bond by which Christ binds himself to us is the Holy Spirit. We gave some scriptural examples and terminology by which we could see this overarching purpose of his work laid out as he does things that constitute the application of Christ to his people, and then we defined his work using largely 2 Corinthians chapter 3, several passages there, to get a working definition of the work of the Spirit. This is the definition under which we are working. The work of the Spirit is the ministration of life through righteousness by means of glorifying Christ through preaching, resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. The ministration of life through righteousness 
by means of glorifying Christ through preaching, resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. We broke that definition down into several parts, and last time considered the first two. The first part of the definition constitutes the matter of the Spirit's work. What is it that is doing? And that is seen in the phrase, the ministration of life. He is the administrator of life. And we saw that he does this in the context of contrasting his ministry with the ministry of the Old Covenant, the letter of the law, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. And then we looked in the second place, having noted the matter of his work being that of ministering life, as the Lord said, you shall know that I am in the Father and you in me and the Father in you. Uh, that, that knowledge is to be an experimental knowledge of living people made alive by the work of the Spirit. But in the second place, we broke down the definition as to the basis of this ministration of life. And that's seen in the phrase, through righteousness. He is the ministrator of life through righteousness. He does not impart life in a vacuum or out of the context with the issues of sin and righteousness. And we looked at Romans chapter 8 and viewed very basically this principle that God did for us in his Son what we could not do for ourselves. What the law could not do for us in that it was weak through the flesh, God did for us in sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. But not only has God done this work for us in the righteousness of his, of his Son imputed to us whereby there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus as to their guilt, for sin, but also God has done a work in us by his Spirit, applying Christ in all the virtues and the benefits of his life and his sacrifice to the saints. That work in us removes the condemnation of the power of sin from us. So not only did God condemn sinners and hold them guilty because they sinned, he also, in his judgment against their sin, consigned them to a life of slavery to sin's power. So God, in resolving that and redeeming them from sin and saving them, had to deal with both issues. Not only their guilt before the court or the law of God, but also their condition, their situation in relationship to God and sin. The guilt was removed when Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. The, the enslavement to the bondage of sin was removed when that sacrifice and all the virtue of Christ alive was applied to us by the Spirit. So we see there is no condemnation in the terms of Romans 8 to those who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And if the Spirit of Christ dwell in you, you are the sons of God. If the Spirit of Christ lead you, you are the sons of God. And that provides great rejoicing. So our concluding statement was, He that has the Son 
has life. He that has not the Son of God has not seen life. And so the Spirit administers life by applying the righteousness of Christ's person and work to the sinner so that no longer does death reign because death has been removed in Christ's death. No longer does the sinner have to fear death because he has been redeemed from the curse of the law. Well, we may begin this week by making the statement that eternal life is the gift of God on the ground of Christ's work, not ours, imparted to us by the Spirit's work applying Christ to us. Just another way of saying what we've been saying. Eternal life is the gift of God on the ground of Christ's work. Remember the statement in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Well, all you need to know is that you sinned and that sticks you under the penalty of death and under its power. But the next clause says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Romans 6 teaches us that eternal life is the gift of God on the ground of Christ's work, not ours, imparted to us by the Spirit's work applying Christ to us. How precious, then, is the work of the Holy Spirit, without which none of the benefits of Christ would be yours, and none of them would be precious to your soul. You would not have your sins forgiven. You would not have its power broken. You would not have hope. You would have nothing but death ruling and reigning. And you would be living in the dark today. You would not be here worshiping. The joy that is in your heart would be missing. And all the purpose for which you live would be non-existent. The Spirit has done it in applying Christ to the heart. Where he has not made this application, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It doesn't apply. It doesn't exist. That is why the work of the Spirit and the necessity of it is why faith is more than an intellectual assent to doctrines. You may not become a Christian simply in your own doing. Not only, not even in the doing of your own mind. You do not become a Christian simply by some sort of self-motivated decision. Conversion does not mean that you have joined the church, that you say your prayers, or that you've learned a few prayers, or that you can count your beads, or that you attend a church, even if it's a good one. Partaking of the sacraments does not save you. Doing anything does not save you. Nothing but the work of the Holy Spirit of God within a man makes salvation happen. Faith is not something men contribute to their salvation. Faith itself is the work of the Spirit. I want to lay the foundation for what we say by directing your attention to the hymn book. Page 680 in the back of the hymn book. Now I'm going to read from... The Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which is roughly equivalent to what you will read 
in the Westminster Confession of Faith in the back of the hymnal on page, I believe, 680. And I believe it's chapter 14 on saving faith, if I copied the chapter number right. Is that right? All right. Chapter 14, XIV, in Roman numerals, on saving faith, paragraph 1. The grace of faith Now, I'm reading from the Baptist one. If there's some differing words, don't stumble. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of the soul, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. Now, that statement in our confession provides us a foundation for our consideration of the work of the Spirit, which we will attempt to look at this morning. We move on in our list of breaking down of our definition. We've seen the matter of his work, which is the ministration of life. We've seen the basis of the administration of life as being through righteousness and a righteousness provided by Christ. In the third place, we will consider the instrument of the ministration of life. As we broke it down in our definition, the instrument. And that comes in our next set of phrases. By means of glorifying Christ through preaching. The instrumentality of the work of the Spirit in imparting life through righteousness or on the basis of righteousness is the instrumentality of the glorification of Christ through preaching. Ordinarily, this work of imparting life through the various means is wrought by the ministry of the Word, preaching Christ. This is his ordinary instrument in administering life. First, however, Let me summarize for you the work of the Spirit in all of its magnitude in order to help you get a handle on all this and be able to organize your mind while meditating on his glorious work and to direct you as you study it in the Scripture. Author Pink lists the following works of God the Spirit. Listen to these. He regenerates, quickens, enlightens, convicts, comforts, draws, works faith, unites to Christ, indwells, teaches, cleanses, leads, assures, witnesses, seals, assists, intercedes, transforms, preserves, confirms, fructifies, and endows. Now, how do we preach that? We can make take one each and preach a sermon on each one. I don't think it would be best to take that time to do it. It would be a legitimate approach. I'd rather do it in another way. We may not be able to exhaust each of those things. We hopefully will brush across them as we go through our, our preaching. But what I've done is attempted to collate all that under 
three broad headings so that you can keep in your mind as you approach the Scripture the way to organize the doctrine of the Spirit. I'm not suggesting this is the only way. It is mine. It isn't, I didn't get this from somebody else, so it probably is fraught through with holes, but it works so far in my study. Each of the things the Spirit does may be subsumed under one of these headings, and here they are. And you'll see how this dovetails with what we've already done in our definition. First of all, he is the administrator of life. Now, that's what we've been concentrating on. He is the administrator of life. We've considered this under the items of the matter and the basis of his work. In the second place, he is the minister of teaching. The minister of teaching. The administrator of life and the minister of teaching. We're going to consider this one today. In the third place, which we'll not get to today, he is the quartermaster of service. The quartermaster of service. The administrator of life, the minister of teaching, and the quartermaster of service. I believe that we can get everything that is listed in all the manifold work of the Spirit under these three broad categories. And that's where we're headed in our minds. But we have a working definition. We've broken it down. And this morning we take up this second aspect of his work, the ministry of teaching, as we look at the instrument that he ordinarily uses when he administrates life or administers life. It is his ministry as a teacher. He's called the spirit of truth that is seen in our observation of the instrument that he uses in administering life. And this instrument is clearly seen in the same part of the text that we saw last time in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, to which I now direct your attention as we look at chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is concerned with this work of the Spirit, the new covenant, the covenant of the Spirit, the ministration of life, of righteousness, of peace, of hope. But he understands and it saturates this text and this passage that there is an instrument that the Spirit is using to work this out. It's very clear. There's no exception to it in this text. There's no passage that gives us hope that somehow he's going to administer life through other means other than this one. We wouldn't make a categorical statement it would be impossible, but we can say with our, the framers of the confession that ordinarily it's wrought through the ministry of the word. Now look at chapter 4. We're still in the same context, the same discussion that we were in chapter 3. Verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry. Remember he said who is sufficient for these things. But God has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. He said that in chapter 3. Seeing therefore that we have this ministry, even as we have obtained mercy, we faint not. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled in them that are perishing, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 
should not dawn upon them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And we won't read the rest. There's so much more here. But you see, he is, his mind is saturated by this stewardship of a ministry that's been laid upon him. And left unaided by the mercies of God, he would sink under it and fall dead. He couldn't survive. He could never administer such a thing. He's carrying a treasure in an earthen vessel. He often is made to wonder how God would have, why God would have done such because of the persecution and the suffering and the difficulty. Not to mention the fact that it's impossible for a mere man so to minister these words as to change the heart of another man. I'm helpless with your soul this morning. In myself, I cannot change you. I cannot make you a Christian. I cannot lead you through a list of statements and prayers and doctrinal assents that will get you to heaven. You can quote every word I say. You can repeat after me and do everything I say and go to hell if the Spirit of God doesn't do its work. So I feel the weight of administering the, the covenant of life while being in myself utterly helpless to make it happen. It's the Spirit's work to give life, to impart life. But I'm a part of that instrumentality. And so Paul says in, in the later verse, this treasure we have in earthen vessels. But why? So that everybody will know that it's God's power, not ours, that does it. So that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. It's when we get a little big for our britches and start thinking that somehow we have the ingenuity, the wisdom, the eloquence to change men's hearts, that God's Spirit is grieved and he begins to resist the proud. The ministry of the Word is on Paul's mind. Look over in chapter 5, verse 18. All things are of God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave unto us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not reckoning there unto them their trespasses, and having committed unto us the word of reconciliation. He feels the weight of the preaching ministry in the context of the work of the Holy Spirit who in ministering life to God's elect has put this accountable stewardship upon the shoulders of appointed men. The Spirit uses preaching, and it's the preaching of Christ. The text we read in John 14, in John 15, in John 16, show us that the Spirit of God is a Spirit of truth to come and teach Christ to us, to apply Christ to us in truth. And we see from the scripture that that's absolutely the case. We're going to look just briefly at how some texts of scripture show that life is imparted by means of the word. Now, why am I wasting your time doing this? I'm not wasting your time. Not only is it good scripture that needs to be expounded in the ordinary minister of the word, but a lot of people have a view of the Holy Spirit that sort of thinks he's just out here operating. 
and that the way to deal with the Spirit is just sort of get a, get a connection to Him, get your, your uh, plug and get it into the socket, and He'll work with you. And what you want is the things of life. Man, this is really living. I've got it. I feel it. I'm happy. The Spirit's working. Did you see it? Did you feel it? That's the Spirit working. And they have some kind of, of approach to the work of the Spirit that's utterly divorced from the work of Christ, the person of Christ, the issues of sin, the issues of repentance, the issues of faith, the issues of righteousness. Not a text we have read yet divorces the work of the Spirit from Christ. You will never read a text that will divorce the work of the Spirit from Christ because there is no text that divorces the work of the Spirit of Christ because His work is never divorced from the work of Christ. He applies Christ to the elect and He does it through the instrument of preaching. Now there's a mystery, but I hope we can see it. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll look at one verse here, or two verses. Well, I'll just read one. Verse 23 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. All the implications of what we're going to see are, are drastic and vast. First Peter chapter 1 verse 23 having been begotten again now oh, great now we're born again Got you, have, have you been born again you hear that question I'm born again I've been born again a few years back in the late 70s and early 80s that was about all you heard around here everybody's been born again and they pointed to all sorts of evidence and proof for it they knew they were born again because they felt happy. They knew they were born again because they'd broken some bad habit. They knew they were born again because their marriage had gotten put right. They knew they were born again because they won the lottery. There were people that actually thought that it was evidence of God's blessing, that gambling was now producing for them. They were born again because they had they'd been healed of some disease. That proves it. They could speak in tongues. They're born again. This text says, having been begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Their very birth, spiritually, was through the word of God. There's a, that's critical to keep in mind. Turn back to James chapter 1 to see a correlated verse. I'm trying to build a case here. Life is imparted by means of the Word. Chapter 1, verse 18 in the book of James. For you who may have heard about the sovereignty of God in salvation and wondered about it and wondered whether we were off the wall, here's a text that can help you. For you who talk about free will and man's power to make their decisions by themselves, without God's work, or somehow helped by God, but it's up to them to do the rest, this verse ought to kill that thinking. Verse 18 of James 1, Of his own will, he brought us forth. That means that word is the word for birth. Of his own will, he brought us forth. How did he do it? By the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. How did he bring us forth? Through the instrumentality of the word of truth. Brethren, some of you who may have wondered at times how preachers can get so animated 
and take preaching so seriously and thought, well, the reason he takes it seriously is because that's what he does for a living. That's his thing. You know, everybody, I take my job seriously. But sometimes you felt we might have been a bit overzealous in it. I tell you, my reason for taking it seriously is not primarily because it's the easiest thing in the world to do and I just happen to stumble on it. There have been occasions in which I could have gotten out of it. There have been occasions in which I would have if I could have. The reason I take it seriously, and sometimes I'm so almost overwhelmed by it, is because it is utterly crucial and central in the saving work of God. The preaching of the word of Christ is the very instrument by which God begets children. Unless the words mean nothing. It is not only that God sovereignly dispenses salvation to whom he will, it is that he always does it, at least ordinarily, through the ministry of the Word. It is not just a secret working of God that does something in a heart and nobody notices. You do hear the sound thereof. You don't know where it came from or where it's going, and it is a sovereign work of the Spirit, but it is not so invisible that you don't see results and connect instrumentality. Do not think that your neighbor for whom you pray is someday by spiritual osmosis going to prance out born again because you prayed and that's all. Somebody, somewhere, has to get within his ears or into his eyes the word of God. And it is in context with the ministry of the word of Christ that that birthing will take place. That's the, the scripture never mentions it in any other fashion. So life is imparted by means of the word. But notice, in addition to this, or as a development of it, salvation is wrought through the word of God. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We have not even gotten to the central outline of our message, but we're building, by way of lengthy introduction, this principle life is imparted by means of the word salvation is wrought by means of the word 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you brethren and notice the list here it starts from time, eternity in the past, and goes all the way to glorification in the future. Notice the ingredients of God's saving purpose and work. Beloved of the Lord. That's the first. That's, that's election. God in love predestinated. You beloved of the Lord. That's the fountain and the root of your salvation. It starts in God's heart, in God's choosing, in God's loving. Second, for that God chose you from the beginning unto salvation... Now notice the ingredients of that salvation. Here are the ways, the things that have to occur to bring God's choice about. In sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. It would be my guess that the reason that they're put in that order is to make it clear to us that the belief of the truth depends upon the sanctification of the Spirit. This is not the same as the gift of the Spirit that's spoken of in Acts that you receive on, the ba on your faith. 
you believe and you shall receive the gift of the Spirit. That's a different category and we'll treat that. This is that it is the work of the Spirit in applying the Word of Christ that brings about faith. It is the grace of faith that is the work of the Spirit of Christ ordinarily wrought through the ministry of the Word. The men that framed these confessions did not do it out of a, a little uh, philosophic meeting. They had their Bibles in front of them. This text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 shows the instrumentality of the sanctifying of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And then verse 14 just continues. Whereunto he called you. Now this word calling is the effectual call. God has brought you into this realm of the experience of the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. God's done it. It's an effectual call. It's not just a verbal invitation. Everybody gets that. But he's speaking of those beloved of God who are brethren, who have been made brethren by the effectual call of God. But then look what he says. Who have called you through our gospel. Not apart from it. Not irrespective of it. But through it. The very effectual call of God came in the context of the proclamation of the word of Christ in the gospel. Do you see that? Then finally, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We started in eternity past in God's loving choice. We end up in eternity future in the glory of Christ and all the ingredients in between. If your friends say, you Calvinists, you talk about the sovereignty of God, but what about faith? What about preaching? What about believing? What about the work of the Spirit? It's all there. Yeah, but if, if, if man's not free in his will, and if all that we do is God chose me, it doesn't matter what I do, then that's not what we're saying. We don't say God chose me, it doesn't matter what I do. We don't preach that. The Bible doesn't say that. Don't call me, tell me I'm, I'm saying something I'm not saying, and then build an argument. I don't have time to argue with something I'm not saying. Let me argue about what I am saying. I'm saying God chose you. God by His Spirit called you unto faith. And through that faith, God has set you apart through the preaching of the gospel so that the ultimate end is the glory of Christ itself. Now, do you see the very elements of our definition in there? Remember the definition? The ministration of life through righteousness by means of glorifying Christ through preaching resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. Conformity to Christ, that's glorification. Perfect conformity to Christ. The whole thing is there. That's what we're saying. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because the Spirit of God has worked in you. If He has not done this work in you, you are unsaved and under the wrath of God to this moment. And this is the essential and central concern of His work. The ministry of teaching. He teaches. He takes Christ and speaks it to the heart. Now, just by way of clarification, you can understand that there's two things going on in preaching. There are those to whom we preach who walk out unconverted and live their lives unconverted and go to perish in the end in hell. 
The same gospel, which is the power of God to salvation, was preached to them. They're not saved. There are others to whom we preach that gospel, whom God takes the words of the message and puts them into the heart and they believe it. And it changes their life. What makes the difference? The instrument is the same in both cases. But the effectual working of the Spirit is not. The outward call of the gospel is the same in both cases, but the inward effectual call of God is different. In the one, he displays the obstinacy and power of sin in letting a man depend on himself to believe, depend on human instruments, depending on words, and it doesn't save. On the other, he displays the power of his grace in taking such an obstinate sinner who left unaided by God's Spirit would stay unbelieving, and he transforms it. It is the display of the glory of God in both cases. <coughs> God is showing us not that he doesn't love everybody, not that he's picky and capricious and unfair in choosing one over another. He's showing us what a glory it is that you have any inkling to be here today if he had left you to yourself without the Spirit's work, you wouldn't be here today unless you were hypocrite. Because he's got people all around you that have heard the same gospel and nothing's happened. And he's using that to say to you, I want you to understand how much I loved you. And I want you to understand the power that it takes to save somebody like you. Because unless I do something like, like that, they're go you're going to be like they are. And you can take that two ways. You can say, well, no, I don't believe, I think the thing is that I just happen to be a little bit better put together than that guy. I just, I've got more sanity. I believe because it makes sense to me. I'm, I have faith and I contributed and God had to save me. Because, I mean, I, that guy should have done what I did. You can take that approach and you can strut around speaking words of the gospel. You can preach, you can do all sorts of witness and be a soul winner, shut around, but down deep in your heart, you already have taken the position that God helps you save yourself. That's what you've done. And I fear. I fear for you. If in your heart of hearts you really believe that salvation is partly shared between you and God. Subtly what you're saying is that the difference is in me and not in God. What we're saying in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is that cannot be. The difference is not in you. The difference is in what God has done in you. Now, do we understand that? Well, then I think it, we then can take up the subject of this means of preaching. The Spirit, through preaching, applies Christ to sinners. Salvation is wrought in, in accordance with God's eternal plan. It's no accident. It's not dependent on man. Salvation is accomplished, applied, and finished through means appointed by God himself. And these means are the truth. You see, it's belief of the truth. And our gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 Under belief of the truth through our gospel. The means is the gospel that the Spirit uses to change sinners' hearts. We don't comprehend exactly how he does it, but we understand that that is essentially what he's doing. Well, let's break down this ministry of preaching Christ Jesus our Lord 
in the following way, and we'll only have time today to get to the first one. First of all, I want us to consider the subject of the message, which the Spirit uses as the instrument of his saving application. The subject of the message. Then, if the Lord wills later, we'll consider the necessity of this message, and in the third place, we'll see the results of the message. In the first place, though, this morning, consider with me the subject of the message. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, ourselves your servants. But in order to examine this, and I think it fits perfectly with our exposition of the text, turn back to John chapter 16 and let us explain a bit more thoroughly that passage in verses 8, 9, and 10, or 8 and 9, in which the Lord states, Spirit, verses 8 through 10 of John 16. What is the subject matter of the ministry or the message in, whose, in the hands of the Spirit which God uses to save? Well, it is not, first of all, the Spirit. The central subject matter of the Spirit's message is not himself. It's very important to see this. He will not speak of, him, of himself, but what he hears he'll speak. It is not essentially that the message he saves is a message about the Holy Spirit. There's a place to preach about the Holy Spirit, and we're doing that. The Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit, but his message is centered and fraught through with Christ. The Son prayed the Father who sent the Spirit from the Father and from the Son to testify of the Son and glorify the Son. And so the Spirit's message is not going to be focused primarily on the Spirit. He's not going to be spending most of his time saying, Notice me, feel me, talk about me, know that I'm here, and tell everybody you got me. The fruit of the message of the Spirit that people will talk about when they have the Spirit is they'll talk about Christ. They'll refer to the work of the Spirit as it has applied Christ. You won't be in a church that will sit around and talking about, I got it, I got it. If they got it. If they got the it with the capital I, they're going to be talking about the saving work of Christ for sinners undeserving. Their prayers are going to be seen as humble and worshipful and thankful. They're going to be preaching around the cross. They're going to be glorifying Christ's righteousness. They're going to be dealing with sins. They're going to be commanding repentance and faith in Christ. And all that's going to be evidence of the work of the Spirit. Where the Spirit is most active in the church, the gospel is most preached. Sin is dealt with all the time. Because sin is the matter for which Christ died. Sin is the problem. Christ's work is the solution. And when a church is filled with the Spirit, they're going to preach Christ as the resolution of the problem of sin. When a church is filled with the Spirit, they're going to apply those issues of sin and righteousness and Christ to the church. That's what you're going to notice when the church is filled with the Spirit. Don't go to some church and therefore look for the tambourines and say, well, they don't have the Spirit, they don't have tambourines. They don't sing any of the new ditties. They don't have enough choruses. So what? So what? Look for some basic elements that biblically prove the Spirit is at work. And what are they? Essentially, Christ preached. He's not preaching himself. There's not some 
indefinite hodgepodge of stuff going on that's evidence of the Spirit's work. Not essentially an emotional or sentimental drivel. Where if you get a certain feeling, you know the Spirit's there. If that feeling doesn't happen, you go searching for it in another church. We're not talking about an experience. The Spirit of God is not here to promote an experience. Some look for a common experience, a gift of the Spirit as evidence of His presence. Well, we may say that the common bond of Christian unity is love. There is an emotional element here. Ephesians chapter 4, the bond and the unity of the Spirit in loving one another, forbearing one another, tenderly, forgiving one another. But the defining parameters of love and the only context and substance of Christian unity is truth. You remember Ephesians chapter 4? You want to take the trouble of reading? Some of you are sleepy, so turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. If you exercise your right or left hand, it'll help you. Ephesians chapter 4. The Spirit is not promoting, essentially, an atmosphere of a feeling called love. That's not the evidence, necessarily, that the Spirit's work. Love is the bond of perfectness. And a church that doesn't love God and love each other is not in unity and is not in the truth. But the parameters that determine this unity, the only context and substance of Christian unity is truth. Ephesians 4 verse 3, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does that mean? Brethren, it does not mean that we on our television set sit in little couches around a semicircle in front of the cameras and grab the neck of a Roman Catholic priest over here and a charismatic hodgepodge over here and a self-appointed independent evangelist over here and say, ain't it good that it don't matter what none of us believe as long as we love each other. That's not what Ephesians 4.3 means. Dismantle every difference we have, pretend it doesn't exist, and say, well, this is unity. It doesn't mean that a church just for the sake of unity, ignores reality, pretends that they don't disagree or agrees to disagree. Brethren, the reason we have a confession of faith in our church is not so we can agree to disagree, but that we can agree to agree. You get rid of some standard of faith, then we can agree. You believe whatever you want to believe. What are we then? Are we what you believe or what I believe or what somebody else? What are we? We're not a church. We're a bunch of churches who meet for convenience in a, local, in a similar location. That's not the unity of the Spirit. How do I know? Pastor, that verse is not clear on me. How do, how do you say a lot of big things? What's your Bible basis? Verse 13 of the same chapter. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith. Now, we've had the unity of the Spirit. It's the same thing. The goal is that we attain to the unity of the faith. Unity of the Spirit and unity of the faith are the same unity. But look at what else. And the knowledge of the Son of God. That's not just as an addendum, but it means a part of the same experience. The unity of the faith is wrought up together with the knowledge of the Son of God. You don't grow in grace without growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
The way you grow in faith and the way you grow in unity is to grow in knowledge of Christ. Unto the full-grown man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what verse 13 tells us. Look at the following. That we may be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with some doctrinal position that's biblical as a center for our unity. That we now throw off doctrinal distinctives so we can be one with the rest of the Christian world. That's not what it says. The goal here, and the reason Christ has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to the church, is so they can teach the church the knowledge of Christ so the church can maintain the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the faith, in the bond of peace. So they can speak the same things with their confession. Think the same things in their hearts. Agree with the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Then they can contend for that faith. Where they don't agree, they can't contend. They will not contend. Verse 14 continues, that we be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men in craftiness after the wiles of error, but speaking trust in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head. We're not saying that it's not love. We're not discounting love. We want all God's people to hug and love and rejoice together. But that can never be apart from truth. How often I thank God for my high school pastor. I wouldn't agree with some of his theology today. I've changed. But I'll tell you one thing you did to me. I, I got one letter from him in four years in college because I wrote one to him. I wrote him a letter along about my third year and I was, I was fishing. I was dabbling. I was learning from college. My Baptist college was helping me branch out. And I was getting into some stuff. And I started to... So I wrote a letter home one time. I said, Dear Brother Bill, all this emphasis on the truth and on preaching and all these beliefs, what about loving each other? Don't we, shouldn't we first talk about loving each other and, and, and not be so adamant about what I believe and who's wrong and all that and this negative stuff? got a quick letter back from my beloved pastor. Fundamentalist, independent, Bible-believing, dispensational, missionary Baptist pastor. Loved me enough to write me back and said, My dear brother, and he quoted from 1 John, several texts. He said, my dear brother, never is Christian love expressed out of the context of Christian truth. It is not one against the other. The only loving pastor is the pastor that tells the truth. Love is telling the truth, speaking the truth in love. You do not love me if for the sake of unity you hide your difference from me and pretend you don't differ. You're lying. The wounds of a friend are faithful. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Don't lie to me. Don't even pretend to agree with this so you can get into the church. God will uncover you. You don't love me. Don't tell your children, Honey, I would prefer you didn't stick your hand in the fire, but I don't want to make you uncomfortable by saying, Now! I don't want to force you. It's your own free will. Now, please, sweetie, don't stick your hand in the fire. And the little two-and-a-half-year-old who has learned is learning independence just feels that he, it's something in his soul that tells him he must do what you said not do. 
It is not loving to say, it would be, but what if I describe the terrible, horrible look of his hand after, hey, that'd be that'd negative, that'd make him feel bad. Tell him what's going to happen to him if he sticks his hand in the fire. And then if he keeps on, try to stop him with everything you can, because you love him. And if he sticks his hand in the fire and burns it, hope that he learns from it and take it out and look at it and say, look what it did when you didn't obey daddy or mommy. This is what it cost you. That's preaching hell, brethren. Not every Sunday, but enough to make sure everybody knows where they're going if they don't repent. The truth. He is not preaching an experience. Brethren, what makes us one is not that we all speak in tongues. We don't. We ain't gonna. I believe. I, I could never guarantee it. But I would pretty much assume that some of us are going to go to heaven having never spoken in tongues. That does not separate me from the unity of the body of Christ. And having spoken in tongues would not have made me one with the body of Christ. I, in your paper this week, has been an advertisement for the latest healing service that's coming from Rome. The picture that's printed to publicize it is Father Diorio with the Pope. And why did he print a picture of himself with the Pope when he claims that he's preaching some the gospel? That he's been born again and that he's not totally Catholic because he wants to get all those Catholics there. He believes that if he's identified with the papacy, that'll raise his credibility. It only costs $3 a ticket. You have to get the ticket in advance. You've got to pay $3 to get there to get healed. Now, why am I making fun of one man or preaching against a man? Because he's in your town, he's going to do this stuff, and I want you to understand what's happening. You would not be surprised to find a crucifix hanging around his neck. You would not be surprised to have the place filled with Mary worshippers. I believe I've been told that there is an element of that in his ministry. He could not get the Pope to allow him to do what he's doing in his name if he were not a Mary worshipper. Brethren, is this the Spirit's work? Where people will meet and praise Jesus, there'll be healing, there'll be an electrical current passing through the place. It'll be so powerful that it'll be hard to believe it's not of God. Is that the Spirit's work? Not if the result of it is people worshipping anything other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And depending on anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ for answering prayer, forgiving sin, and granting them salvation. That's not the work of the Spirit. But these men would have all Christians everywhere pulled together in the name of love and work toward a common goal, which is what? Utterly the dismantling of distinctive doctrines which save men's souls. The slight of men in cunning craftiness through the wiles of deceit. That sound like the truth. They are very appealing. And you see the danger of this? Your heart was worked on by the Spirit in such a way that you want more than almost anything in the world to get along with brethren happily. You want people who name the name of Jesus to be brothers and you want to love them and you don't want to have arguments or disagreements. Wouldn't it be nice if every one of God's people could gather in one church in one place every week and just love each other in the truth? We all want that to happen. I'm not against that. I'm not in favor of division. I don't like it. But brethren, I'm not responsible for it either. I don't choose to divide from brethren. I simply try to define what a brother is 
And I welcome anybody that wants to join me with that. Don't fall prey to that deception that your heart, which wants not to have any conflict, doesn't recognize that there's going to be conflict in the truth. There are going to be family members that think you've gone off the deep end and withdraw from you emotionally because you believe somebody has to believe certain truths to be saved. Don't back off the truth in order to have... You must, within all your power, live at peace with all men. But there's a limit to what your power can accomplish. Don't ever compromise Christ's name in order to get it done. I will not embrace a worshiper of Mary in the name of Christian love and unity. I will have already been swayed by every wind of doctrine when that happens. And one of the reasons that I'm a pastor is so that I may guard you from having that happen to you, if I may. Unity is not increased or advanced by laying aside doctrinal differences or pretending doctrine is irrelevant or divisive or unimportant. Doctrine is essential to Christian unity. It is doctrinal unity that the unity of the faith is all about. Not divorce from love. But it is, a, it is a common confession of the faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints. So the Spirit's not ministering some nebulous thing. What is he ministering? He's ministering Christ. Verse 8 of 16, John. When he has come, he will convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John 16, 8. When he's come, what's going to be the primary emphasis of his work? Not making the world feel happy. Not giving them power to heal their bodies when they have a problem. Not delivering them from every earthly crisis if they pay, a t- pay for a ticket. Not giving them a sense of well-being and self-esteem. Not giving them a worship service to attend regularly where they get a happy feeling and go home in a glow. That's not going to be the primary emphasis of his work. I'm not suggesting that people can't get healed, won't get healed, and there's not going to be glows following the work of the Spirit. I have a feeling there are. But I'm telling you, that's not what he's here to do. That's not his essential work. He's here to convict the world in respect of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. To convict the world. What does the world convict, what does the word convict mean? Well, it means two things, essentially. It means, on the one hand, to prove guilty. That's what the word actually means, to prove guilty. Well, does the Spirit do that in the Gospel? Absolutely. This is exactly what the Bible does. The Word of Christ proves guilty the whole world. We don't have time to turn there, but text in Romans chapter 1, that God has left them without excuse. Romans chapter 3, that the Scripture has concluded all under sin. Chapter 11 in Romans, the, the God has caught up and shut up everyone under sin. The message of the Gospel, administered by the Spirit through the mouths of chosen instruments in this world, is a message that proves the world is guilty. And what does he say? Of sin, because they believe not on me. The central message of the Spirit is Christ. Those that believe not on Christ are condemned already. The scriptures, the Spirit, proves them guilty by the preaching of the gospel. Brethren, get this straight. Any gospel preaching which does not make Jesus Christ the only possible way of salvation or that adds 
anything to him or takes anything away from him is not only not gospel, it is not the work of the Spirit and it will not and cannot save. Get that in your skull and don't ever lose it. Ground that in your heart. How is he going to prove the world guilty? In reference to its ultimate essential sin of not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his work. The Spirit's work is to shut people up as outcasts from God who do not believe on Christ. That's one of the reasons that this modern charismatic movement has been so devastating. They have taken the word Jesus and the terminology of the new birth and the Bible language and doctrines and experiences and all in the midst of it often have utterly obliterated the cross. They don't preach against sin unless it's the sin of some other church. They make preaching on sin a pep rally in which people laugh at other people's sins and applaud against them. And I will tell you this, I'm well aware, though we have prayed as we prayed this morning, and we must do so, that the issue of abortion is not the primary issue of our day. And I want to warn you that if you get caught up in that kind of issue, you will lose your perspective as a citizen of the kingdom of God shortly. And pretty soon you'll be marching down the street somewhere arm in arm with somebody who denies Jesus in the name of some other common bond which is far beneath Christ. I tell you, pornography, a big issue. They had a thing on television yesterday. There was a, a, an hour-long thing. They were going to show you a little pornography and show you why it's bad. These Christians are going to end pornography. We've got to stop it. Brethren, it's a terrible, devastating thing. It's a wretched thing. It is bad. And I'll tell you what, you better be careful getting caught up on an issue like that and forget that if people come to Christ, all that won't be needed to be fought. What if you get rid of pornography out of 7-Eleven? What have you done? You've still got a bunch of wretched, wicked people that are going to find another place to express it. Don't misunderstand me. I hate those things. But I tell you this. The gospel of Christ is the issue. I don't have time to march down against every issue. I don't have time to waste a day or two every week to go sit in and get thrown in jail and hope my wife can get me bailed out. Because I'm trying to stop somebody else from committing sin. I tell you, don't lose the issue. It is not that the Spirit is primarily working in the world to make us look good and everybody else look bad. And to promote our morality. The Spirit is here to convince the world that outside of Christ, they're wicked and, they're, and to prove to them they're sinful. Now listen. That's why my heart doesn't get as caught up in some of these things as some others do. When they come out for morality and they don't want to talk about Jesus, I'm sorry. It leaves me cool. And I'll tell you why. Ultimately, their movement cannot succeed. They cannot ultimately succeed. Why? Because the issue is that people don't believe on Christ. If you want to give all your fortune and your life and go to meetings and support a movement, go to the one that will count the most forever. That's why we're on Wednesday night here yielding, wielding weapons against Satan's kingdom instead of marching. Is it wrong to march? I won't say that. But we have a weapon God has given us. He's directed us. That's our weapon. If that one fails, what are you going to use? 
I'm not interested in seeing that Malchus, the high priest's servant, gets slashed with the sword of the flesh. That'll accomplish nothing. But the sword of the Spirit will accomplish much. Brethren, I have decided my life. I decided it a long time ago. If I'm going to make a mark, it's going to be in the gospel. If I'm going to leave a mark, it's going to be in the gospel. It's hard. Most people don't want to. They'll get excited and spend their life savings on some movement. And the name of Jesus. They, well, we can't use that because the Catholics wouldn't join us if we say Jesus is the only way and Mary doesn't help you. We've got, we got to get Catholic. Well, the Jews wouldn't join our organization if we talk about Jesus. We've got to, you know, we're doing good things that Christians ought to do. And uh, so when they talk to Christians, they talk Christian language. When they talk to Jews, they don't talk Christian language. They get them all. I thought it was a basic flaw of the moral majority. Because they organized away from the thing the man had been called to give his life to. What am I saying? Am I chasing a rabbit? I'm trying to establish in your mind that the issue at its essence is not believing in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And that is what the Spirit is here to do. To prove that the world is guilty at that essential point. They've not believed on Christ, and I don't care how many anti-abortions are among them. I don't care how many of them hate pornography, how many of them are moral. When they stand before the judgment of Christ, they will perish forever if they didn't embrace Him in His name. And I love them too much to let them think God's going to accept them because they did so much good. And I don't want the church to get carried away with it. Take your stand, write your congressman, write the justices, appeal to them, but Christ is the issue. That's the work of the Spirit. Now we have a long way to go and I can't go further this morning. His essential work is to convict the world, to prove it guilty on the one hand, and to awaken in it a consciousness of guilt on the other. I wonder... If you sit here today and can see that you have not believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be a child who is relatively a good child. You're pretty obedient because your mommy and daddy are good parents. You may feel that God loves you and everything's good with you because you're in a context of a church in which talking about Jesus is accepted. Some of you are even schooled at home and are not being exposed very often to some of the pressures of peers. You may assume, therefore, that you're no danger with Christ. My statement to you and my appeal to you, young friend, is you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. Not Daddy's faith, but yours. You must trust Jesus or you can't be saved. And it's more than just accepting what Daddy and Mommy told you. It has to be God speaking to your heart and you believe in Christ's voice and His Word. So pray that God will teach you about Jesus so you believe in Him. Ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins and save you for Christ's sake. Ask Him to inform you and instruct you and teach you so you will grow up mighty in the Scriptures as Timothy did, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Some of you may be here who you've got a profession of faith and you've been baptized, you've been through the whole nine yards. But as you look at your life, you know that your life does not support a testimony that you've believed upon Christ. You're not holy. You're here out of duty, out of 
habit, out of whatever. But your heart doesn't love the things of God. The first chance you get, you'll be right back in the same old patterns. Nothing's changed. There's been no uh, application of Christ to the heart. You, you know what we're saying is true, so in that sense, the Spirit has awakened a consciousness of your guilt. But I ask you, have you confessed that guilt? And have you bowed to Christ? And have you embraced Christ? And is he precious to you? If he is, you'll be in church when they need to worship. You won't have to have a church rule that requires it. If he is, you'll love to pray with God's people. And when when it dawns on you, you've not been doing that, you'll get that straight. If it is, you'll make the, the name Jesus will become the most precious thing in your life. You'll not be so preoccupied with external morality. What will happen? The heart will be transformed. And out of the heart will proceed a whole new way of thinking and speaking and acting. I challenge you. I beg of you. I plead with you in the name of Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. Ask God by his spirit to apply Jesus to your heart so that the name Jesus becomes precious and the sweetest name you know. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The church prays to that end. The Spirit and the Bride invite you to come. And I invite you in the name of Christ to come to Christ. Face the fact. If you're not serving Christ, if you don't love Christ, you don't believe in him. And the Spirit is here to convince you that you're a sinner. And to hold you guilty before God. Flee from the wrath to come. And come come to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are able to confess that we do not have any hope and confidence in our own strength or words. And so we rest this sermon in your hands and ask that you would take what was true preached and make it precious to our hearts. Lord, these have been old truths to some, not coming as a shock to some, but we pray that somehow your spirit would take them and make them true to those who didn't hear earlier, who didn't know. Oh God, how utterly dependent upon you we are for the work of saving faith. Come and make that thing precious to us which we call faith. We ask for any among us that are sinners that you may work. O Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us and make Christ precious to us. Forgive the weakness of preaching and use it as the wisdom and power of God by your Spirit at work. Lord, in mercy for Christ's sake, hear us. Amen.